Hello and welcome to episode 54 of Employment Law Matters. Welcome to Employment Law Matters with Barrister Daniel Barnett. We all get irritated by little things. Some of the things that irritate me are people who refer to the Employment Appeals Tribunal, its appeal, Employment Appeal Tribunal, or to the Equalities Act, and it's the Equality Act, although I do recognise Equalities Act probably makes more sense grammatically. Something else that's always irritated me, and if you've been listening to these podcasts for any length of time, you'll know that Mrs. B has to put up with an awful lot, and she's amazing for doing so, is the concept of sending someone a letter to say they've been given a verbal warning. And don't get me started, by the way, on whether it should be a verbal warning or an oral warning, because that's a rant for another episode altogether. Now, about... Two and a half centuries ago, when I was taught employment law by the great Professor Gwyneth Pitt, she looks a bit like um, Makepeace from Dempsey and Makepeace, which is why I studied employment law really hard. At least I think it's Makepeace. I'm thinking about the non-hairy one. When I was being taught employment law, it had this mantra, verbal warning, first written warning, final written warning, dismissal. And if you were an employer and you departed from that verbal warning, first written warning, final written warning, dismissal, then the union shop steward would bellow everyone out and every union member would down tools and start picketing and set up a load of secondary strikes all around the area. Now that doesn't really happen anymore. I've spent the last at least 10 years, telling employers not to worry about stacking up warnings. If something's serious enough to dismiss, dismiss for it. If it's not, don't. It's not rocket science. If someone's warned and doesn't improve, you can probably dismiss unless there's a good reason not to. Simple. And of course, the whole thing about confirming verbal warnings in writing is totally and utterly nonsensical. If they're in writing, they're not verbal. They're written. Yes? No? My brain's going to explode from the paradox here. And anyway, at the weekend, I mentioned verbal warnings to someone because that's what I do at weekends. And they laughed at me. They said, Daniel, we've not done verbal warnings for years. They're not even in the ACAS code anymore. I said, what? And I dug out my clearly insufficiently thumbed through copy of the ACAS code on disciplinary procedures and grievance procedures and blow me down, verbal warnings aren't mentioned in the ACAS code. When did I miss that? So I thought we need some crowd wisdom here and I put out a poll on Twitter. It said this, someone has told me that businesses don't really use formal verbal warnings anymore and they no longer appear in the ACAS guidance. Does your business still use verbal warnings? And if you fancy looking at the results, but I'll tell you what they are in a second, that went out on Twitter on the 6th of June 2020 under my Twitter account at Daniel underscore Barnett. So what do you reckon the result was? I'll tell you the poll question again. Someone has told me that businesses don't really use formal verbal warnings anymore and they no longer appear in the ACAS guidance. Does your business still use verbal warnings? So there were 404 votes. And I think I truly, genuinely, passionately believe with my whole heart that that's representative of the whole country and not just the sort of employment law geeks who follow me on Twitter. 404 votes. What percentage do you think said they still use verbal warnings. Well, the answer might surprise you. It's quite low. 35%, 35% said they still use 
verbal warnings, but a whopping two-thirds, 65%, said they don't. Now, some of the comments were interesting. Emma Del Torto from Effective HRM, who is a lawyer-turned-HR entrepreneur and absolutely brilliant, said that she still uses verbal warnings for clients, but always follows them up in writing. And following them up in writing is the bit that clients often don't follow through on. Rich Hughes, who's an HR consultant who describes himself on his Twitter biog as a proud Brit and Tory, and a thrill-seeker, said... This has always struck me as a contradiction. If it's formal, it has to be recorded in writing, and therefore it's not verbal. Only those inside a tribunal believe this particular pin is worth dancing on. Businesses are far too busy and pragmatic for such games. Rich, as it happens, I completely agree with you. And as a thrill seeker, you won't get many more thrills than from following me on Twitter. Thank you. Peter Holmes, who's an employment lawyer from Wirehouse employer services said the general feedback i get from employers is that they aren't worth the trouble of the procedure either informally tell them off or go formal and give a written warning and i think that's right what peter holmes says if you're going to give warnings and write them down call them what they are a written warning if you're Just going to tell someone off informally or give them words of advice. That's what you do if you're wearing a T-shirt with the word, I'm a pretentious moron printed on it. Then do that. But if you're just giving them an informal telling off or words of advice, don't write it down and pretend it's not a written warning. If it's written down, it's written. Anyway, that's my mini rant over with. Nothing I say should take away from the benefit of informal on-the-job training or telling people they're not doing something right. But if you're going to go formal, go formal and do it properly. And one other thing, for goodness sake, it's called an employment tribunal, not an employment tribunal. Hello, I'm Daniel Barnett, an employment law barrister from Chambers in Central London, and I hope you enjoy listening to my podcast, Employment Law Matters. At a time when businesses are facing real problems getting through the coming months, we know hard decisions have to be made, and I've recorded a series of videos showing you ways in which you can avoid redundancies and also showing in a step-by-step format, if you have no other choice, exactly how you can go about making redundancies in a way which is fair, reasonable and legal. I'll tell you what the 10 modules are very quickly. Module one is an introduction. Module two is on the definition of redundancy. And if you'd like to know more, have a look, please, at www.gettingredundancyright.com. Module three is 13 ways to avoid redundancies. Module four is on choosing your selection pool. I talk about when you can use a pool of one, when you use a bigger pool, how to decide how narrow or wide to make it, the two rules to use when choosing your selection pool, and all about consultation over the pool. Module five is on selection criteria. We'll talk about objective versus subjective criteria. Subjective is not a bad word. We'll talk about clarity of criteria, how to use the matrix method, LIFO and length of service as a criterion, performance and skill-related criteria, absence-related criteria, and how you adjust scores to deal with those on long-term sick or those with disabilities or those on maternity leave. I'll tell you how Eversheds, one of the best law firms in the country, got this completely wrong. We'll talk about cost to the business as a criterion and miscellaneous criterion as well. Module 
Module 6. And again, for more detail, go to www.gettingredundancyright.com. Module 6 is on scoring and individual consultation. And you'll learn in that the importance of a fair scoring system, the three rules for making managers score fairly, why it's an easy way out to rely on interviews, but it's dangerous, why I'll never win a consultation would be useless argument. I talk about how long you should consult for. Is a day enough or a week or a month? I talk to you about what to say when an employee asks for someone else's scores, how you consult with people who aren't in the workplace, such as women on maternity leave or employees on furlough. I give you five key rules for consulting over Zoom or Skype, and I teach you about what happens if an employee refuses to engage with the consultation process. I'll just tell you in outline what the last four modules are about. Number seven is on collective consultation. Number eight is on alternative employment. Number nine nine on dismissal including payments timing of notice and exit packages and number 10 is miscellaneous issues that i haven't covered elsewhere like voluntary redundancy bumping redundancies following a cheapy transfer and the impact of furlough you can get much more information from www.gettingredundancyright.com and it also comes with a large number of resources I've put together my own template redundancy selection matrix, which you can use to score employees during the selection process. You get a copy of all of this stuff when you download. I'll also give you a copy of my own redundancy policy, which I give to my regular corporate clients. Third, you'll be given access to an exclusive group I've set up on Facebook only for subscribers to the Getting Redundancy Right course, where you can discuss issues from the course and ask questions. Fourth, I'm going to run at least three live online Q&A sessions over Zoom for subscribers to the course to answer questions and help you with redundancy scenarios. Fifth, I'm going to give you complimentary access to the 29 videos of 29 webinars I did in April and May 2020 with 29 employment barristers on 29 aspects of employment law. All these resources, as well as the 10 video modules, are available to anyone who signs up at www.gettingredundancyright.com. I look forward to seeing you on the inside. Any information on this podcast is for general guidance only. Always seek legal advice. Please see full terms at www.danielbarnett.co.uk.